Welcome to Refactor This, sponsored by vFunction. In each episode, we talk application modernization tools, concepts, and advice with industry experts. Welcome to the Refactor This podcast. My name is Oliver White, and today I'm joined by Dr. Holly Cummins. Holly is a Java champion, O'Reilly author, frequent conference speaker, and currently a senior principal software engineer at Red Hat working on the Quarkus runtime. Holly, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I've been a fan of your work for quite a while now. I think we first met in the UK maybe a decade ago at a geek out conference with Simon Maple and James Governor was there, Martin Verberg, a lot of other folks. And uh, I think at the time you were spearheading the IBM Blue Mix Garage initiative. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Yeah, it was a, a good event, that one. Yeah, it was one day and uh, fully subsidized by cheap ticket sales. And I think we had a really fun time. Good coffee, especially. Good coffee is the most important thing. It does matter a lot. So Aside from the introduction that I just gave, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your 50-word bio? How do you describe what you do to people and and your background? So I've had a a little bit of a a circular journey. I started out my career in IBM working on WebSphere. So I helped develop the product that started out as WebSphere Liberty and then eventually became Open Liberty. And then I switched to a client-facing role. So I was a consultant in, as you say, um, the IBM Bluemix Garage that then became the IBM Garage. And what we were doing there really was helping businesses take advantage of the cloud. And we we sort of started out with the idea that we were going to be working on greenfield projects and working with startups. But because we were using things like lean startup and extreme programming, a lot of IBM's existing customer base sort of looked at what we were doing and they were so intrigued. And they said, how did you manage to do all of these cool methods in a big company? Can you teach us to do that? And by the way, we have this horrible problem with the cloud and can you help us with that as well? So I did that for about five years. And now I'm with Red Hat and I'm in the Quarkus team. So I'm an engineer in the Quarkus team. So I helped to build Quarkus, which is cool because Quarkus is just awesome. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to talking about Quarkus a little bit more uh, later. So what you just described was the, the, so the Blue Mix Garage was kind of a creative space to start looking at new technologies, especially cloud services. And this was, you know, kind of in the early days of the cloud. So what did that do for customers that were using IBM WebSphere you know, large deployments. So what you're saying is that they started to look at this new stuff and said, hey, how can we get involved there? Yeah, exactly. They sort of, they they looked at all this cool stuff going on with the cloud and they said, we need to be doing that as well. But it seems like such a big leap to get from where we are now to where we know we need to be. And we think we need a helping hand with that. So can you please show us the way. And then what we saw, which was kind of interesting, was we saw the same patterns happening over and over again of of the sort of, you know, the the same hurdles that each organization would face getting to the cloud. And what was your response? What were some of the initiatives that worked well for these, let's say, legacy clients that had existing mission-critical applications that were monolithic architecture and you know, they were struggling with how to, let's say, maybe decompose functionality that could maybe run in the cloud. Again, this was in the early days. What were some of the early responses out of that team? 
One of the techniques that we did in the garage that I think was really important was we did design thinking, which is, you know, just another way of saying human-centered design. And we did it in all sorts of domains. So we did it for like things where there was a front end where you'd kind of maybe expect it to be used, but we did it just on pure backend modernization as well. We did it for blockchain. We did it for everything. And because what you're really trying to do with design thinking is figure out what problem are we trying to solve? And I like that, you know, that I just say that all the time, but it's it's the most important question. And a lot of the problems that you see are because we haven't actually figured out what problem we need to solve. We're just sort of going off in all sorts of directions. So what we do with design thinking is we'd say, okay, well, we're going to figure out what problem we want to solve. And the way to figure out that is to look at the people. What problem do they have? Because if we fix their problem, then we're going to be in a good place. People meaning development teams, uh, customers, end users, or everyone yeah okay yeah so sort of that yeah like I think the first thing we would do is sort of try and figure out one of my colleagues had this idea that he called find the person which was okay let's first of all figure out whose problem we're going to solve and sometimes that's the developers sometimes that's you know we have a retention problem it takes us a really long time to change anything and the reason is because working on our system is horrible how can we make working on our systems less horrible sometimes it was maybe something external like our customers are leaving us because we can't actually implement any new features because any change takes two years. So then it's, okay, well, how do we start to improve our internal cadence to better support those external customers? So identifying the problem in the way that you're thinking, it seems a little, well, it seems not exactly straightforward. What were some of the problems people were coming to you with in their words And how were you working to, let's say, rethink the problem in a way that made sense for the initiative, like design thinking? Was there a mismatch there or rather was it, you know, our customers are leaving us, that's a problem. But when we get down to the code, the problem maybe can't be as abstract anymore. Yeah, like it's... We saw a bunch of mismatches for like a bunch of different reasons. So one of them was kind of like what I'd call maybe a misalignment where direction gets handed down from the top and it doesn't, at some point, the why gets lost. So one of our um, clients, they were a Canadian bank and they'd had, you know, sort of one of the analyst firms in who'd said to them, you know, right, if you go to the cloud, you'll save like $28 million or $28 billion or some, you know, some number that made the executives, you know, eyes pop. And they said, okay, we need to do this. And so then they sort of put out this decree that thou shalt go to the cloud. And there's, you know, 28 <laughs> million in there. But we didn't actually, or, you know, they, they sort of hadn't actually done then the sums to sort of figure out, okay, well, is this going to save us money? Is this going to save us money? Why? And so I think sometimes they'd end up doing things that were actually probably going to cost them more money and not have any benefit in order to sort of match this overall, you're going to go to the cloud directive. And we had another one, which isn't directly modernization related, but is sort of modernization related, which I, I really love in terms of problem mismatches, because it all of us, I think, get excited by new technology. That's why we're in technology. And, you know, that's a good thing, right? Like we all, yeah, we want to be moving forward. But then sometimes that can lead us to like invest in the wrong areas. And so we had um, in around 2017, it was the year of the chatbot. And every single organization that came through the garage wanted a chatbot. It didn't matter what the problem was. (laughs) The answer was a chatbot. 
So we were working with an industrial client and they had a problem where the people on the factory floor would keep getting locked out of the system. And so then they would keep having to ring up to get a password reset. And they said, okay, well, let's automate this. Instead of having a manual password reset that's on the phone, let's use a chatbot and they can do the password reset. Hmm. And and there's all sorts of problems with this, like thinking about like, well, wait a minute, how do we do the security for the password reset? And you know, just because you do it over the phone doesn't mean you want to do it with the chatbot. But then there's also this sort of problem where we're taking a process and automating it without really thinking deeply enough about like, is this actually the right mechanism? So that was the sort of the first problem. And then when we sort of drilled down even deeper that we realized, it was like, why are they getting locked out? Well, the reason they're getting locked out is because they were wearing these really heavy gloves and it was a handheld device. And so they'd have to like key in a pin wearing these really heavy gloves and they would only get three chances to do it and they would get locked out. Uh So the actual solution to the problem, the optimal solution to the problem was instead of having three attempts, you could have nine attempts because actually it wasn't, it was like a shared ID. It wasn't a valuable password. It just needed some kind of authentication. But then this is where it sort of comes back to the modernization to make this one character change from three to nine for how many attempts you could have was actually going to be a monumental nightmare for them because they had this sort of big SAP system. And you know how SAP systems go that, you know, once upon a time they were maybe manageable and then they just grow and grow and grow and, you know, get more customized and more customized. And then actually it was going to be easier for them to write a chatbot than it was going to be for them to make the one character change in the SAP system. So sometimes the problem you think you have isn't (laughs) the problem that you actually have. Yeah, that's uh, that kind of brings me to the question of, you know, what have you seen people get wrong when it comes to modernizing applications? So, for example, we held a survey in which we spoke with 250 senior IT leaders. And the criteria was that they had to be working with a system that was at least 10 to 15 years old. The company size needed to be 5,000 employees or more. So it was it was quite stringent. We were looking for people who were essentially working with legacy monoliths in a large enterprise. And some of the stats that came about were frankly surprising to me. However, perhaps it's not surprising to you. So one is that 79% of modernization projects ultimately fail to come to fruition. And this That's happens so at a cost. Yeah, so four out of five. And not only that, the average cost of this failure is one and a half million dollars in 16 months of workdays. So does that surprise you at all or does it make you feel a little cringy or? <laughs> I mean, it's a really shocking statistic, but then when you sort of, the more you think about it, the more depressed you get, but the less surprised you get. Cause you know, it is frustrating cause you think so much could be done with those kinds of resources. And it, you know, it sort of seems like, oh, this just matches, you know, anti-patterns that I've seen in the field. So then it sort of becomes less surprising. And I think, again, a lot of it is sort of, it's about this misalignment where we sort of have this directive and these huge resources come in, but we don't think deeply enough about what problem are we trying to solve? What are the conditions for success? And have we actually put in place those conditions for success? Or are we sort of I sometimes think about it in terms of like an incomplete modernization where part of it will get modernized, but then another part of the process won't get modernized. And so then it means that you don't succeed because you only had some of the conditions. 
like we had a bank that came to us and they were sort of, you know, a legacy bank and their lunch was getting eaten by the challenger banks, which is quite a familiar story. And they were sort of looking around going, okay, why is this happening to us? What are they doing that, that we don't have? And then they, they realized that they had this huge COBOL estate, which of course the challenger banks don't have. And they said, okay, this huge COBOL estate is our problem. It's stopping us from being able to change quickly. We're going to modernize it to microservices. Can you help us? And we were like, oh yes, we can help you. But then they added, our release board only meets every six months. So at that point, unless you fix that problem first, it doesn't matter how many microservices you have, they're going to get released at most once every six months. And so you still aren't moving as fast as you need to be able to move to keep up with a modern challenger bank. And so, you know, if that had gone ahead, it definitely would have been one of those 80% failures because they wanted to move fast, but they didn't actually fix the thing that was stopping them from moving fast. Mm -hmm. So this maybe speaks to the you know, company culture side of things versus the technology and code. You know, what are your processes? What are your pipelines like? What is the volume and frequency of changes and updates? Let's talk a little bit more about what people get wrong when it comes to modernizing applications. We've, we've kind of touched on it in a few places, but you mentioned some anti-patterns. I'd like to dig into that a little bit if you don't mind. Sure. So we're looking at a swath of shareholders that include executives, system architects, and of course, development teams, and maybe even DevOps practitioners across various teams. What are some of the anti-patterns that you've seen that appear to be specific to certain teams and maybe not others? So an anti-pattern might be a way of thinking versus you know having a tightly coupled code base. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of it does, is particularly when you have that sort of wide group of, of stakeholders, one of the problems we see is, again, you know, just that misalignment of like, what problem are you trying to solve? And also then, what incentives do you have in place? So particularly in a lot of regulated industries, but actually, you know, across a lot of organizations more generally, you know, there's this real sort of corporate culture, which punishes failure. And that the incentive that creates is for people to never change anything. Because if you don't change, you haven't failed. You haven't, you know, you haven't broken the build. You haven't shipped something that's incorrect because you didn't ship anything. And so then you end, you know, it's the classic sort of dev versus ops thing that we still haven't really sorted out of if ops are incentivized for the system not to change and dev is incentivized for the system to change, there's going to be a problem. I think with modernization, you sort of need to go from both sides. So you need to have this top-down alignment where you get the execs in a room with the architects, with developers, and we try and make sure, okay, you know, maybe using design thinking or something else, are we actually going in the same direction? Do we all understand what problem we're trying to solve? Do we have the incentives aligned? But then you also want to start from the other side as well, because you don't want to just do this sort of huge top-down multi-million dollar initiative that doesn't really change anything. So then you want to start from the other side too, and maybe have, you know, the sort of the small team that takes the less critical piece of code, modernizes it, shows that it can be done, shows what releasing frequently looks like, shows what these tools and patterns look like, identify the right ones, and then roll that out through the rest of the organization with the backing of success behind them because you know evidence is the best success is the best evidence yeah so essentially baby steps this is something that other guests on on the podcast have mentioned multiple times yeah. so taking baby steps don't go after a, a big bang modernization 
where the only thing that changes is the front end. But <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I think you know one of the people we've spoken to in the past is a uh, is a bank, and their learning experience was that when they released a uh, very popular mobile app for their banking services, suddenly their customers were logging in 10, 12, 15 times a day compared to once or twice a week. Mm. And suddenly they had a, a volume issue to deal with because they'd only modernized part of the stack and not you know, the business functionality behind that. Quickly, I wanted to ask what you think about the terms migration versus modernization. And there's a lot of, uh, it's a little bit of a gray area for many people, I would say. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of organizations out there that look to solve their problems by migrating to the cloud without doing the modernization part before that. And a lot of times this ends up being uh, underwhelming in terms of the performance. What would you say to this distinction? Yeah, I, I have really mixed feelings about this one because I really like, you know, consistent with the idea of baby steps, I really like the idea that getting onto the cloud can be a very sensible baby step rather than trying to do this big bang of we're going to start on the cloud and we're going to start with a completely new application. But I think we need to have the right expectations if we do that. And if you have your same old application on the cloud, it's not going to solve all of the things that you were hoping it's going to solve it it just can't because you know the cloud isn't magic it's just someone else's data center so yeah. you know sometimes and again you know, you've, you've outsourced some headaches but uh more will come <laughs> yeah and sometimes you know sometimes again depending what problem you're trying to solve like if you're looking at it from a, a cost perspective and then you're actually running on really expensive cloud systems you might have made it worse and that actually what you needed to be doing is you know serverless or or however it, it works out what do you feel has been helpful for your clients and and for yourself in terms of architecture patterns that have been helpful for modernization initiatives i'm thinking about the strangler fig pattern as you know termed by martin fowler gosh uh, almost 20 years ago at this point oh, no. Uh, yeah, I know. It's been that long. It's been that long. So the strangler fig pattern, the saga pattern for messaging between microservices and so on. What sort of, if, if you could, uh, let's say, pinpoint a particular paradigm to follow, what have you seen work and what were those conditions? So I'm a, I'm a really big fan of, of the strangler fig pattern. And, and I like that you called it the strangler fig pattern because I've usually seen it called just the strangler pattern. And it took me the longest time to yeah. figure out what was going on and what we were trying to achieve with that. And then I finally saw the picture and it's like, oh, I get it. Okay. But yeah, the sort of the, the idea of gradually carving out bits of your application and, and modernizing them, I think is much more likely to succeed because it's incremental. And I think it also means that you can be quite efficient with your efforts. Because when you look at the whole estate, there's some things that you're going to want to modernize and some things that you won't. But probably even within an application itself, if it's a big enough application, some parts of it don't need to change. And so then you can sort of carve out the bits that do need to change and then maybe leave that sort of unused core just sort of sitting there chugging along and you haven't wasted effort modernizing something that didn't need it. The saga pattern... I, it's something I always have to, every time someone mentions it, I have to look it up because it's something that I haven't actually done myself. But I think it's 
I mean, it's clearly so important because it, it's again the sort of if you're going to avoid doing an incomplete modernization where you have something that's new and shiny and then this sort of old big thing dragging it down and ensuring you don't meet your goals, then you're going to need to think about how you do your transactions. And, you know, like two-phase commit is not going to work if right. you have a modern microservices architecture. So I think that's really important. Another thing that I've seen as important at an architectural level is thinking about the integration layers as well. So like we kind of now know that you need to have probably a modular front end and that front ends tend to be more modern. So that's sort of slightly easier to get there. And then of course, we're all familiar with microservices and now we all know because it's been told to us so many times, you need to have distributed databases. Not, well, yeah, you need to have multiple databases as well, which means you end up with sort of this distributed database, which is why you need the saga pattern. But then often in a lot of businesses that I've worked with, there's sort of an integration layer in the middle and that team has not really done very much modernization and they can be a bit like a panicked sandwich in the middle and everybody else is sort of trying to get smaller and release more often and they still have to release everything in a chunk so you end up with the sort of the request going into the integration team and then kind of dying for six months because they have to do everything in a big batch and something's holding it up so i think looking at the including the integration in the architectural picture and thinking about what conditions of success are at that integration layer as well is really important. That's an interesting uh, concept to think about. I wonder if the integration layer is often overlooked, especially when going from a monolith to microservices, we tend to rely heavily on well-defined APIs, at least for the new microservice or let's say the strangled functionality. <laughs> You know, Martin Fowler actually updated his blog from 2004 with a little comment at the top that said, you know, originally I called this the strangler pattern. I realized some years ago that this was actually uh, connoting some undesirable impressions. So, <laughs> you know, he's strong with the strangler fig pattern. Let's talk a little bit more about what you're doing with Quarkus because it's new. It's using you know, it's Kubernetes native, it's using Graal VM, it's kind of really touching on the cutting edge landscape of development. Is Quarkus the sort of tool that can help a large organization modernize a vast legacy application that was written 20 years ago and has 15 million lines of code and 12,000 Java classes, that sort of thing? Or does Quarkus play a role in application modernization, or is it firmly footed in the greenfield or maybe even brownfield area? So we're seeing a, a mix in our clients between greenfield and sort of modernization. But I think it probably there is an important qualifier there that what we're seeing is sort of maybe not modernization from something that's 15 years old, but modern well i was going to say modernization but actually it's more of a migration so more a migration from something that's maybe 5 years old and customers are starting to look at these applications and saying well i only wrote it 5 years ago but now it's starting to look really quite bloated and my cloud bill is really really horrible and i need to try and reduce my resource usage and why does each node in my microservices application take like two gig of memory. And then when I add that all up, that adds up to, you know, like 2000 for this one little application. And how did that ever make sense as an architecture and what can I do to fix it? And so then 
migrating that to Quarkus can really sort of give a big benefit in terms of the efficiency and the resource usage. And again, depending where it's coming from, you know, it might be a programming model migration, or it might be that actually it's just, if it's already like a, you know, a Jakarta Java EE app, then that's probably in most cases just going to be the programming models already there. It's already supported in Quarkus. Because Quarkus is relatively new, some of the programming models that were like 10 years out of date when we started developing it aren't in Quarkus. And, you know, we always sort of always have this conversation internally when, you know, to sort of say, well, should we support this programming model because it's really old, but on the other hand, people still use it. So, you know, where's, should we be helping people to move off that programming model or should we be adapting our tooling to where they are? Because then they would still get a lot of benefits in terms of efficiency. Like what we see the sort of the, the super golden path for Quarkus is when people take their application and then they just start running it on Quarkus and all the programming models are still there in Quarkus so they don't have to change anything. But all of a sudden it starts like four times faster and uses half the memory. And then it's like, oh, yeah, that was <laughs> a pretty good free lunch. <laughs> so you just brought up a, a wonderful point that I feel like I sometimes forget to consider, which is that application modernization doesn't focus only on the most ancient applications out there. There's a lot of what we would maybe term cloud native apps mm. that were written three, four or five years ago, but they were maybe written fast. They've already accumulated some technical debt and there's a lot of room to optimize them in the cloud, especially, you know, for container usage and, uh, you know, sizing of instances and so on. So application modernization is not only for Java EE6 applications and around that age, but in fact, there's a lot of opportunity to optimize. I wonder if application modernization could encompass application optimization as well. Mm -hmm. so maybe that uh, also conjoins I think so. Like there's sort of, you know, there's the depressing saying, isn't there, that code is legacy the second that it gets to production. Right. <laughs> and and I think the sort of one of the reasons that we are where we are with application modernization is that we sort of had this idea that like, if it was written recently, I don't need to look at it. I can just leave it to rot. And then you come back in 10 years and <laughs> it's really horribly rotted. And, you know, it's like a lot of things, you're probably going to be a lot better off doing regular maintenance. And then you don't sort of have that big bang, but you're in a much healthier space and you don't need to do the sort of the wrenching modernization because you're just continuously keeping it updated. And it fits really nicely with, you know, other patterns like continuous development and continuous testing and continuous documentation and all of that. Yeah. We at vFunction are starting to use the term continuous modernization, which mm. is uh, referring to maybe a, uh, a practice of continuously monitoring for technical debt. And, yeah. how to, and, and how we define that. Yeah, I love that. So earlier you said that you mentioned that it pays to figure out early what you should modernize and what you shouldn't. So my question is kind of like, do enterprises need to modernize everything? What experience have you had in terms of judging whether certain services or certain functionalities should be modernized and which ones shouldn't? I think with that really being guided by pain is <laughs> you know, sort of slightly grim, but it's, I think it's, yeah. it's the right ap approach. Because I think we can sometimes get a bit too 
purist about it and we want to get rid of all of that old ugly code because it offends us. But actually some things have been, they were written 15 years ago. They're in a server under the stairs. It just works. They just keep chugging along. We don't need to change it. So, you know, even though it offends you, leave it alone and, and focus on the systems where we're getting a lot of customer requests to change it. And it hurts us every time we have to try and change it and we can't change it in the way we need. Or on our internal users as well, like our developers. Like, you know, when you go into the one office and the developers are sort of gray and sad because, <laughs> you know, the joy is being drained out of them working on the system, then you're going to have a retention problem unless you do some modernization. Yeah, that's something that I like to talk about more and more during the, I guess, what we're calling the great resignation, mm. especially what happened in, in many industries during the, the COVID, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, but especially hit the you know, highly demanded role of Java developer and, you know, software engineer, the human toll that working with a complex, difficult, slow to release system has on engineers in the team and what mm -hmm. that means for the team, team morale. Yeah, it just drains the motivation out of a team. Yeah, yeah. And, and we've heard this and, and now, you know, a lot of developers can literally walk across the street in many cases and get a job somewhere else. I often ask our guests about career advice, but I'd like to switch it up a little and say, you know, what hope can you provide <laughs> to developers that have inherited a legacy application that is still incredibly important, but it's, it's using aging frameworks, it's accumulated technical debt, what can we tell these folks to make them feel a little more hopeful? I think in almost all of those cases, there is a business benefit to modernizing it. And if they can get to the point where the business is willing to undertake the modernization, to invest in the modernization, even if it's only a tiny corner of it with Strangler Fig pattern, that's going to be better for them and it's going to be better for the business as well. So if they can articulate that benefit and then they can start fixing it. And of course, working on those systems that never change is horrible, but doing the change can be really fun. You know, it's a bit like cleaning the house, isn't it? You know, you sort of, you don't necessarily relish the prospect, but it feels so good when you start to see the gunk get scraped away and you've got, you know, nice shiny new code there that's going to be more enjoyable to work with. It's uh, akin to getting that old car running again. Yeah. <laughs> sort of thing. Well, Holly, it has been absolutely wonderful to talk with you today. I, I can only say that I hope we can meet in person again sometime. That brings us to the end of our podcast. And for our listeners who'd like to have a little bit of fun at the end, I'm going to invite Holly to our lightning round. So, Holly, what is the last song you listened to? Oh, I think it was something by Sarah McLachlan. Really? Mm. Oh, she's wonderful. It's been yeah. a long time. Uh, I think uh, I played her a lot during the first breakup of, of my, uh, rather a breakup of my first girlfriend. Oh. <laughs> what do you do to stay healthy? I run, although I couldn't say I enjoy running. <laughs> I sort of, I endure running. Are you, uh, it doesn't hurt your body to run? It does actually. It, it, yeah, I'm starting to feel quite old because yeah, I had to. I went for a run a week ago, and then my heel hurt for about four days, and I was limping around the house. So, you and I are in the, in the same boat. Yeah, we need heel modernization. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh yeah. <laughs> Modern, yeah. Modernize those feet. <laughs> yeah. The, the legacy body just is, isn't coming yeah. anymore. <laughs> You've got problems with legacy code. I've got legacy organs. Yeah. Legacy <laughs> legs. <laughs> legacy legs. That's a good band name. Uh, <laughs> what is one of your favorite comfort foods? I live for cheese. Oh yeah. Me too. Marks and Spencer stopped bringing fresh or rather refrigerated goods into most of Europe after oh. Brexit. And I still uh, shed a tear every once in a while over that. Mm, yeah, their cheese is really good. Yeah, it really is. What is one of your favorite movies? I love The Princess Bride. Oh yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I wasn't aware that it was a book. <laughs> mm. I, uh, and now, now I'm gonna head down, down that path and, and try to grab the book too. There's so many technology lessons in that movie as well. Like never fight a land war in Asia can be applied to, to so many technology contexts. Like I was just talking to a colleague today and he said he was doing an IoT demo and it was like, no, never fight a land war in Asia, never do an IoT demo. <laughs> you know, these are universal lessons. <laughs> Would you ever allow a robot to perform dental hygiene on you? And why or why not? I've had some pretty bad dentists. So mm. I kind of feel like Maybe a robot wouldn't be worse, but I'd want to see it done on someone else first to get the confidence. Because mm. you know, I've I've seen what Auto Predict says, and <laughs> you know, you wouldn't want that done to your teeth. Yeah, auto auto correct for uh, dental hygiene is not something I'm looking forward to. <laughs> no. And finally, if we could bring the T Rex back with cloning, would you vote yes or no to do it? I'm going to answer the clothing question because I just love the idea of a T-Rex in like a little nightgown or in a hoodie. <laughs> but I think I think the T-Rex question, it's sort of, it's similar to the shiny, isn't it? Of like, we get so excited by the shiny and we want to do the thing that's most exciting when actually there's some of these things that are a bit more graft, like not sending animals extinct in the first place that maybe should be our higher focus, even though they're less glamorous. Mm. I, I like that. Well, Holly, thank you so much, and I hope you have a wonderful day and weekend. Thank you. You too.